Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The news this week has been grim. Fires, climate change, resurgent COVID. But still, humans are reaching towards understanding of our universe. The James Webb Space Telescope is the next big thing in astronomy. The Hubble Telescope, its workhorse predecessor, has been rewriting our story of the cosmos for nearly 30 years. And now, finally, the next generation space telescope is set to take flight a bit later this year. It's been a long, long time coming, and we'll talk about what it took to get here, what we might see and learn peering out and back into time with this new instrument of discovery. Lift your eyes up and get ready to think about the cosmos. That's next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I'm of the generation that missed Apollo. And for me, the most exciting moment in space came when the Hubble telescope began to send back images of giant towers of dust 7,000 light years away in the Eagle Nebula. They were the birthing grounds of new stars, and NASA immediately called them the pillars of creation. That is to say, new telescopes show us new and awe-inspiring things. And later this year, NASA's James Webb Space Telescope will be strapped to a French rocket and launched nearly one million miles into space to look at faraway galaxies and peer into the atmospheres of exoplanets. The telescope employs new and novel technology, the largest mirror ever launched into space, and a sun shield the size of a tennis court. The hope is that the telescope, which has taken 25 years to design and build at a cost of $10 billion, will shoot back images even more spectacular than Hubble's. The engineering risks are extreme, but scientists who've spent their whole careers working on the mission hope for a grand reward. That's the drama of a new feature on the telescope by our first guest, novelist and writer Rivka Galchin. It appears in the latest issue of The New Yorker. Welcome, Rivka. Hi, Alexis. Thanks for having us on here. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. I mean, you're a very versatile writer, covered a lot of different terrain, and you're not exclusively a space writer. So why, what attracted you to this subject. Why, why the James Webb Space Telescope? You know, like everyone, um, there's something about astronomy of all the sciences. I mean, I love to write about science. I love to talk to scientists because they have such tremendous patience and to bring you into their world, even though you enter it at like a second grade level. But what I love about astronomy, and I always keep an eye on what NASA is doing, is that is exactly that thing, is that astronomy is something that my seven-year-old daughter is obsessed with, 
my grandmother's obsessed with. It, it's just so, um, it just connects to people all across the spectrum, all sorts of different interests. There's something about all the sciences, I can't think of any other area that lets people in the way that astronomy does. Hmm. There's also, you, you focus a lot on the story, on the personal sort of small stories of the scientists and how they came to this work and, and who they are. There's this incredible mismatch of kind of scale there, right? It's like the cosmos against these individual humans working on Earth. Yeah, exactly. And I think that connects to that same idea, which is that astronomy, I mean, it's interesting. Um, almost everyone I spoke to sort of went to public high school. You know, they didn't sort of come from families with sort of generations and generations of scientists. And, you know, often I'll report on physics or other fields where it's quite a different story. And in astronomy, I think more often now, I, you know, I haven't done the sort of uh, extensive survey, but more often you just encounter people who found their way into this quite technical and profound science on their own without a lot of doors open to them by family or connections. And, and that's something that's quite beautiful to me. And, you know, I think about that as well. I had just finished a novel um, in which Johannes Kepler's, Kepler's mother is one of the main characters, but what's <laughs> so moving about Kepler as well is he was nobody from nowhere, but he had a great gift for math and he had an interest in kind of what God had written in the book of nature and, and, and he was able to sort of solve profound questions. So I feel like there, perhaps I'm being romantic, but I think there's a through line there that there's something about the cosmos that's just been available for speculation much longer than, you know, what Newton has thought about or, um, it, it, it's just a, a long, long line of thought. Yeah. I mean, your story really drives at that deep question. Like, you know, we have human beings have looked to the stars for all kinds of things, for navigation, for farming advice. Now, what do you think we get from looking at the stars or, you know, the heavens in the old language? Like, what do we get now, given that we have satellites that tell us when it's going to rain and we can navigate by GPS and, and these other things? I, I mean, I think that's such a deep question. And of course, I'm more interested in what astronomers would say to it. But as a layperson, something um, that draws me into the field as someone who really doesn't know um, the level of technical detail that they do is, for example, you know, right now it's the Perseids meteor shower. And, you know, I'm sort of spending time with um, my daughter, all her cousins, all these different ages. And it just gives you a sense of scale. It's, I think some people are frightened by that sense of scale that astronomy gives you. They're sort of terrified at the, at the nothingness of it. There's sort of a brilliant Monty Python song about sort of like, just remember your, you know, when you're, when you're feeling bad, just remember that, you know, you're nothing basically. Whereas I think, uh, you know, but I think there's another story in scale, in experience in that sense of scale. And I feel like I see that in, in children a lot and I see it in, the better among the adults, that they're sort of actually interested in that sense of smallness, that the, the smallness of their own life and the sort of largeness of the universe, that it's quite emotional. I think, you know, Alexis, you mentioned that you missed Apollo and I missed Apollo, but I bet you remembered Halley's Comet. It's mm -hmm. kind of like a foundational astronomy moment for people of my age. And I, I, I just think that people like to stitch themselves into that story story into that much longer story yeah 
You also have a great line You in your story. You write, each time we look farther, our universe gets larger. Or depending on your perspective, we get smaller. Astronomers take the position, an incidentally ethical one, of being radically in favor of knowing. I, I just love that line. Well, yeah, and I mean, of course, it feels quite moving now because, you know, for example, uh, I'm calling in from Turkey, and when they were reporting on the wildfires in Turkey, they made no mention of climate change in the news that was based in Turkey. It was just sort of an, it was just an unknowable, it was a fact that on the one hand, the people who are forbidding it being spoken know very well that it's true, but there's something, they're just averse to the truth because it doesn't serve their purposes. And, and I find it quite moving that astronomers and a lot of scientists, scientists working in public health, scientists working in all sorts of fields say to themselves, I'm not asking, does this truth serve me? Does this truth better my position politically or economically? That's not their question. They're just saying, I wanna know because it's out there and I'm curious and I'm full of wonder and I have this openness to whatever is out there. So. It, it's both yeah. like a truth about astronomy, but quite moving overall. Yeah. And now I want to bring in a couple of astronomers, a couple of people who study space. Uh, first, I'd like to welcome Marsha Riki. She's a professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona, and she is the principal investigator for the near-infrared camera on the James Webb Space Telescope. Welcome, Marsha. Thank you, Hello to everyone. Yeah. And we also have David Helfand. He's a professor of astronomy at Columbia University. Good morning. So you're both in Rivka's story. And David, I want to ask you the most basic question here as an astrophysicist, um, which is, what do you hope this telescope will discover? I think that as with all new radically improved instruments we build to study the universe, it's most likely going to discover something that we haven't thought of yet. <laughs> and that's the most exciting part. But there are two things that we know it will do and we've been waiting to do for a very long time. And one is to look at the universe very, very far away in a period just after the universe was born when the very first stars and the first galaxies began to form. And the other is looking very close to us at the many, many planets that we've discovered around other stars to see what the composition of their atmospheres is and whether or not there's a possibility that they host life. Hmm. Marsha Riki, as we ponder the capabilities of this telescope to uh, unlock new things, I want you to tell us your story of your involvement with this project. Like, How long have you been working on this? I have been working on this project for what seems like half my career. I joined the project in 1998 as part of um, what was called an ad hoc science working group. Oh, did I lose you, Marsha? Oh, great. Well, uh, David Helfand, you've been waiting while we wait to see if Marsha uh, comes back on the line. You've been waiting for this um, project for quite some time, too. Have we been able to make advances on the sorts of things that the James Webb Space Telescope will discover, even though it has been delayed and we haven't had access to this new instrument? Yes, we have. And it's just made the anticipation all the greater. Uh, from ground-based telescopes and using Hubble 
uh, we've managed to push back the frontiers of our ability to observe galaxies back to when the universe was only about four or five hundred million years old. Now, mm. only only an astronomer would say only in that phrase, <laughs> but that's a very small fraction of the age of the universe, which is 13.81 billion years. So we've been able to go 97% of the way back, but not 99% of the way back. And then on the planetary front, uh, we've been discovering planets at enormous rate. I looked it up as of yesterday, 4,466 planets, uh, around 3,314 stars. And we've explored less than 1% of the galaxy to find those. And we're defining more and more every day. So the targets for the James Webb keep proliferating but the key science questions remain unanswered. And what's special about that period shortly, and by, again, shortly, we mean in the few hundred million years after the Big Bang, what's special about that time? Well, we know what the universe looked like when it was 380,000 years old, which is really a baby picture. If you put that in the context of a human lifetime, it's like taking a picture of a baby when they're less than 16 hours old. We have a beautiful picture of the universe at that moment, it's called the cosmic microwave background. And it shows us that the universe was stunningly uniform with the tiniest of fluctuations in density and temperature, but otherwise just a miasma of gas of hydrogen and helium gas. And yet today we look at the universe and we see that it's got galaxies and huge voids and large superclusters. So it's very lumpy, very lumpy universe today. And the question is, how did it go from being so smooth to being so lumpy? What we want to do is look back to when those first fragments managed to accrete, managed to collapse and generate the very first stars and the first proto-galaxies. We're talking about the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, which will launch later this year with David Helfand, a professor of astronomy at Columbia, Marsha Riki, professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona, and Rivka Galchen, the contributor to the New Yorker magazine and the author of a recent article, NASA's new telescope will show us the infancy of the universe. Do you like to scar stargaze? What do you hope the new telescope will find? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the James Webb Space Telescope, which will launch later this year with Rivka Galchen, a novelist and a contributor to The New Yorker magazine, who's just written a great story about the telescope. Marsha Riki, professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona, and David Helfen, a professor of astronomy at Columbia. And we want to know, do you like to stargaze? What do you hope the new telescope will find? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And of course, you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Marsha Riki, I wanted to ask you, we, we dropped you for a second there um, as we were starting to talk about the, the telescope itself. And can you just start to tell us about the actual building and construction of this like remarkable machine? Oh, this was quite uh, an epic journey to get this telescope built. The part that I'm most closely involved with had to get done early on because it's more or less in the center of the whole um, payload that will get launched. And interestingly, when we were um, testing the instruments, 
at Goddard Space Flight Center, we were in a control room with a big window and right outside in the next room, the telescope itself was being assembled with the mirror segments being put into position and things. And it was so much fun to see um, the young part of my crew rush over to the window and, and just cry out with glee that they were seeing history. And then later at another test in, at Johnson Space Flight Center in Houston, when they saw the whole telescope assembled, they were just beside themselves with being able to see this hardware as it came together. And it's been quite a remarkable journey to go from uh, what we call a PowerPoint telescope to an uh, actual physical huge telescope. <laughs> yeah. And do you, uh, Marsha, can you give us a sense of like, how complicated is this telescope relative to previous ones like the Hubble, which we already think of as a quite complex instrument up in space? Oh, this one is quite a bit more complicated for several reasons. Um, one big reason is that it's kind of an origami telescope. It is so big that it can't fit into the nose cone of a rocket. It has to be folded up and unfolding it and getting everything deployed and aligned so it works like a regular smooth telescope is, has been quite an engineering challenge. And I think we have it all straight, but uh, it's certainly not simple. <laughs> yeah. Um, Rivka, you've obviously been following the James Webb Space Telescope sort of adventure for quite some time. How did you come to think about just what the telescope, like when you picture it in your mind, what do you see and how would you help explain that to, to listeners, like sort of what this thing might end up looking like in space? Yeah, well, you know, this actually like I sort of ordered myself a pair of socks because the way that the mirrors look is so sort of beautiful. It has this kind of organic, almost like bee honeycomb look. So there's going to be, um, I, guess, I guess part of what seems so special about it, which Marsha alluded to, is it's an origami telescope. So, you know, we're already accustomed to kind of the magnificence of NASA and a lot of people in kind of like, you know, white sterile suits handling some very incredibly smooth surfaces and, you know, dust, you know, with no dust and just um, just a kind of magnificent sense of sterility. But I sort of feel like that gets away from the almost organic. It almost sort of feels like a flower. The, the web mm -hmm. is that um, part of what was special was when... Um, John Mather came up with the idea of having something that could fold. It just seems so absurd when you have something that has to be so precise and work so perfectly. You don't really want to have to have it basically sort of be like a crumpled up piece of paper that's then going to be flattened out in space. But they did sort of come up with this incredible design. So you're going to see um, this beautiful pattern of octagonal mirrors that sort of form a lattice like a honeycomb. And that's merely the light collecting disc and astronomers will do a better job of sort of not kind of like alighting over the kind of technical mistakes that I make when I sort of summarize it. <laughs> but then there's going to be these beautiful kind of um, 
kind of mat. I think of it as just a magic material. It's called Capton. It's been around for a long time. It looks to me like mylar. It's like a human. I'm more familiar with mylar, but these giant, extraordinarily thin, they make aluminum foil look like basically an enormous concrete plate. These extraordinarily thin Capton sheets, five of them, that will make even the giant mirror, which is like a house, seem small these sheets will be like as large as a tennis court is what they usually compare them to so it's just going to be kind of the most magnificent dreamy toy chihuly glass sculpture fragile but strong kind of thing floating up there in the sky and we won't be able to see it but there's sort of a lot of beautiful images on the nasa website that i would encourage people to look at because um because it's magnificent, just even when you are a lay person and you don't understand all of the engineering that went into designing something that is at once so refined and so strong, yeah. it's just a magnificent thing to see. Oh. David Helfand, I, I want to talk about the utility of some of the things that Rivka just described. We have these tiny, you know, these incredibly thin sheets, this sun shield. What's that there for and why is it so important to the actual operation of the telescope? Well, what no one's mentioned yet is another enormous complication is this telescope is not going to be a few hundred miles up orbiting the Earth like Hubble, but it's going to be a million miles away from Earth in space and completely unreachable. So all of this unfolding has to be done. Uh, and maybe remotely. pause there for one second. Why did we decide to put it there? What's special about that point in space? Because the point of this telescope is that it operates in a part of the spectrum. It detects radiation that our eyes cannot see. It detects radiation in the infrared part of the spectrum, which is at wavelengths longer than our eyes can detect. And the Earth is, uh, and the sun and the moon are very bright sources of this radiation. So we need to get far away from the Earth so this radiation doesn't heat the telescope and destroy the signal that we're trying to observe. The sun shield that you've been talking about, the tennis court size Kapton, uh, is in fact also to make sure that none of the energy coming from the sun in those wavelengths is absorbed by the telescope and degrades the signals that we're trying to detect. Marsha Riki, you have, are obviously working on the infrared instrument, you know, one of the, the main instruments that's going on this telescope. What does that part of the spectrum really allow us to see? Uh, it allows us to see the most distant galaxies, for the simple reason that the universe is expanding, and we've known that for since about 1920, you know. And the expansion means that the further a galaxy or an object is away from us, the faster it's moving away from us. And things that move away from us have their light shifted to longer wavelengths. And the most distant galaxies, what would have been visible light, it's shifted all the way to the infrared. And so if we want to detect those most distant and otherwise known as the youngest galaxies, the ones that form right after the Big Bang, we have to look at very red long wavelengths. And so that was one of the original rationales for building this telescope was to detect those galaxies. The infrared is also quite useful for studying the atmospheres of the many exoplanets we've discovered because it's a good wavelength regime for studying water molecules and so on. So we can tell with an atmosphere is like Earth's atmosphere or not. And it also lets us peer into 
the dust-filled clouds where new stars form. When we train this telescope onto in some some planets in a system that we've identified, you know, um, David Helfand told us earlier that we've discovered four thousand planets or or so outside um, our own solar system. What are we going to be looking for? Like when when you start to see the data come back from the James Webb Space Telescope after it's been trained on a planet, like what would be the most exciting thing that you could see come back? It would be absolutely stunning if we could see an atmosphere around an exoplanet whose composition matches that of Earth. That's not terribly likely from what we've seen so far, but that would be really exciting if we saw the same collection of molecules that we see in our own atmosphere. And we'd be able to determine that by the infrared uh, light alone. Like we'd essentially be able to say, we just by looking at this planet, we can see the different molecules that would be in its atmosphere. Right. And actually, we wouldn't do it with just a single image. We'd have to use a technique called spectroscopy, which involves taking the light and essentially running it through a prism so it gets spread out into its constituent colors. Um, and the infrared can be split up just like visible light from the sun going through a through a raindrop makes a rainbow. And it's by that technique that we can um, see all these molecules. Yeah. We are talking about the James Webb Space Telescope, which will launch later this year with Marsha Riki, a professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona and the principal investigator for the near-infrared camera on the James Webb Space Telescope. David Helfand, professor of astronomy at Columbia University. Rivka Galchen, a novelist and a contributor to The New Yorker magazine and author of the recent article, NASA's New Telescope Will Show Us the Infancy of the Universe. And we want to hear from you. What questions do you have about galaxies beyond our own? What questions do you have about this telescope? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And I think I'd like to uh, bring in uh, a comment, which actually kind of mirrors one of my own uh, questions. A, A listener writes, I never made it past high school physics. And I'd love one of the guests to explain how we are seeing galaxies that were formed, that, that are young, they're formed most recently here. And David Helfen, I'm going to throw this one to you, and I'm going to just, th- this is my version of that question. One thing I've always wondered about these telescopes that look sort of deep into time slash the universe is how exactly do we like, quote unquote, look back to 400 million years ago? Like, how do you focus on that time? Yes, well, this is something my students uh, often find frustrating until I explain it to them. Light travels at a finite speed. It's a very fast speed. It's 186,000 miles per second. So it's around the Earth eight times at the equator in one second. So in our everyday lives, we don't notice this at all. But when we're looking out uh, to the moon, even the closest object we have, it takes the light one and a third seconds to get from the moon to the Earth. Now, that means you're seeing the moon in the past because there's no way to get any signal of any kind faster than the speed of light from the moon to Earth. Now, again, the moon doesn't change very much in one and a third seconds. So again, that has no practical implications. But when we go to the little robots and the helicopter we have on Mars now, for example, Mars is about 10 or 12 light minutes away from Earth. 
And that means when we see a picture uh, taken by the rover as it rolls over the surface of Mars, and we see, oh, look, it's getting near the edge of that crater. No, that was actually 12 minutes ago, and now it's a billion dollars worth of space junk at the foot of the crater. Right? So there's a time delay. In our solar system, that's just an inconvenience. It's a time delay that lasts for minutes to hours to even a full day. When we flew by Pluto recently, took a day to get the picture back. But when we go on into the universe, it gets to be serious. Uh, the nearest star is 4.4 light years away. So it takes 4.4 years for its light to come to us. We see it as it was 4.4 years ago. The nearest galaxies are 100,000 or 200,000 light years away. So we're seeing them as they were 100,000 years ago. But that's still all very local. If we look out deep into the universe, we see it's a book. The entire history of the universe back to the first fractions of a second are laid out before us. And all we have to do is open to the right page in the book. That is look out to the right distance if we wanna see what the universe was like 1 billion or 10 billion or 13.8 billion years ago. And I guess the uh, the follow-up question here for me that I, that has occurred to me many times, now I've got an astrophysicist right in front, there's obviously a lot of stuff in between us and that those spaces very, very far away. So how do we detect only those things from that time and not the dust and stars and galaxies that might fall in between there? The space is really very, very empty. <laughs> See, it started out, the universe started out very small and very dense, but it's been expanding now for 13.8 billion years. And as a consequence, well, yes, of course, there are galaxies in some directions. That's what we take pictures of when we can see them. Uh, but most directions you can look in, you can see all the way to the edge of space and time. Hmm. And so Marsha's camera, which is what's going to be on the front page of uh, every newspaper in the country when the first <laughs> image comes out, uh, you'll see lots of little spots of light, infrared light in this case, but you'll still see blackness in between them. Yeah. Um, Marsha, Riki, as we start to do this, you know, deep cosmic investigation, we also do have the sort of realities of this is a machine a million miles from Earth. Um, how long is this going to be able to last in space and, you know, the Hubble's been up there for, for decades now. Is it going to have the same kind of lifespan or is it going to uh, have a much shorter mission? Uh, somewhere in between. It's in, in the engineering sense, it's been tested so that everything can work correctly for five years. And engineers are quite conservative and it's thought that it'll easily last 10 years there are some mechanisms with bearings that might eventually wear out. But the real limitation is that where it's in orbit, um, it takes a little bit of fuel to maintain it at that, that particular location. And we're hoping to fill the tanks as full as possible. And with sort of a nominal kind of scheduling, it would last for 14 years. But I'm willing to bet you that the people at Space Telescope Science Institute will figure out ways to order the observations to minimize the use of that fuel, and then we'll just see how long it lasts. Hmm. And why does it have to be at that particular, like, why can't it make observations from other points in space? Well, <clears throat> David already mentioned that it's a, a special spot because of the thermal considerations, the rejection of heat, the Earth, Sun, Moon are all in one direction, so they're all on one side of the sun shield. 
But the other thing is that we don't want the telescope to get too far away from the Earth because there's a lot of many megapixels worth of data to send back to the ground. And so you don't want to have to transmit over too long a distance. And so there's this special point where the <clears throat> telescope can orbit the sun at basically the same kind of rate that the earth does. So it, the earth and the telescope stay in the same relative relationship. And so we can send the data back relatively efficiently, but keep every, all the hot stuff on the same side. This special spot's called Lagrange Point, too, but it, it, that's not so important. <laughs> yeah. And just double-checking, there's no way to actually fix this telescope if something goes wrong, right, because it's so far away from the Earth. Yeah, we don't have any way to send an astronaut, and if the sun shield is deployed, it's going to be extremely cold, and an astronaut in a, in a rubber or plastic suit wouldn't want to touch it because his suit would freeze and crack. We're talking about the James Webb Space Telescope, which will launch later this year with Marsha Rieke, professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona, David Helfand, professor of astronomy at Columbia University, and Reva Galchen, novelist and contributor to The New Yorker, who wrote an article about the James Webb Space Telescope. You can send us your comments about the telescope. Uh, we're on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and we're talking this hour about the James Webb Space Telescope with Reva Galchin, who recently wrote an article for The New Yorker about it, Marsha Rieke, professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona, and David Helfand, professor of astronomy at Columbia. And I want to bring you into the conversation. Let's add Arshad from Fremont. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much for taking my call. Um, I had a question. I was told that the heat shield was designed uh, as an afterthought or it was not in the original specifications of the Hubble, uh, of the James Webb telescope. Um, they found out that it was needed after the design was completed. Mm -hmm. And I'd also like to understand how does it uh, exactly work? Uh, Marsha Riki, that might be you. I mean, I, I know that the telescope went through a bunch of different design redesigns, right? Right. But the, the sun shield has actually been part of the design since around 2000, um, because it, it very, very early on, uh, around 1996 or 97, it was thought that maybe um, coolers could be used, but it was found to be a better overall design to use a sun shield to block the light rather than trying to use active cooling. And parts of the sun shield have had to be redesigned for several reasons. One is that the original design had a larger sun shield, but people may not be aware of something called the solar wind, so that part of the sun's surface is always boiling off and blowing out into the solar system. And that pushes on the sun shield like it's a big sail. And so we had to adapt uh, the 
planning to that solar wind effect so that we wouldn't get pushed out of, out of the orbit too quickly. The way the sun shield works is that there are five of these Kapton layers that get pulled out in a system of cables and pulleys, and they're separated by a couple of inches between each of the layers. The layer closest to the sun is very hot. And as you go up the stack of five, each one gets cooler and cooler till the top one is cold enough that the whole telescope instrument structure cools off. And the heat that gets um, reflected from each successive sun shield layer, the intermediate layers, the, the heat kind of bounces around and comes out the edges. And so that's, that's how it works. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that, Marcia. So, so good to hear those, those details and, and the history of it, too. Um, I want to bring in Name from New York into the conversation. Hi. Welcome. I just have one. Well, thank you. I just have one question. Can the telescope, if it's close enough to a planet, see foreign aliens and structures they live in? This is a really, this is actually a really interesting question because I think, um, let's go to D- David Helfand or Marsha, which one of you wants to, to take this one on sort of how much can we see? It's such a big telescope and it's sitting in space. What would an image of an exoplanet really look like with this telescope? A dot. <laughs> Dan. Yes. The very Just nearest, the, the very nearest uh, planet that we know of is, in fact, around the nearest star, four and a half light years away. Uh, a light year is six trillion miles, so we're talking twenty-eight trillion miles away. And in that circumstance. Uh, even with this very large telescope 20 feet across, uh, it's still going to look like a dot. Hmm. Marsha, are we talking like a literal pixel or is it like a few pixels? We're talking literally a pixel. I mean, some years ago, uh, there was a discussion at NASA about making a telescope that could actually have maybe five pixels across an exoplanet. But it was quickly discovered that that telescope would have to be nearly 30 miles across. That's wow. really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and from, from that single pixel, we're going to be able to tell things or I guess a, a series of observations based on a, a single pixel. We're going to be able to actually tell things about the atmosphere of those planets. Yes, because exactly. you see, it's not. Oh, sorry, Marcia, go ahead. No, you, you go ahead. You can give a good explanation for this. <laughs> go ahead, David. So it's a single picture in an image. Okay. But what we're seeing is a very large number of different wavelengths or different colors, if you will, of infrared radiation. What happens is the planet crosses in front of the star and the light from the star is blocked by the solid body of the planet, but shines through the atmosphere of the star. That atmosphere is filled, as Marcia said earlier, with different kinds of molecules. Through the atmosphere of the planet, the light shines through the atmosphere atmosphere of the planet. planet. Yeah, Yeah. sorry, through the atmosphere of the planet. And the planet's atmosphere is filled with these different molecules, water, we expect, um, other kinds of gases. And those molecules absorb very specific colors of light, imposing what looks like a barcode 
on this rainbow of colors that we're getting from Earth. So while it's only a single picture pixel in an image, it's actually hundreds of independent observations of different colors and the imprint of the molecules in the planet atmosphere uh, allows us to say what the atmosphere is made of. Yeah. Um, Greg writes, we'll stay with you, David Helfen, um, that so far we've seen back to a few hundred million years after the Big Bang and that this will allow us to see further back. Uh, what questions about the evolution of the universe will you hope to see answered with that look back? Maybe... I think they're asking, asking one layer down from how did we get from a largely homogenous universe right after the Big Bang to the quite clumpy universe that we see all around us. Right. So as I said, back in the very beginning, we know the universe is very smooth. And that smoothness corresponds to not just the distribution of the matter, the hydrogen and the helium, but also the dark matter, of which we believe is about seven times as much of normal matter. The tiny fluctuations in that dark matter start to exaggerate. So you had a little lump of stuff in some random place. And so the stuff around it feels a little gravitational tug and so falls towards that little lump, which makes it a bigger lump, which extends its gravitational influence further, et cetera, until you start clumping this dark matter together. And the normal matter, the hydrogen helium gas, falls into this gravitational well that this dark matter is making. Until it reaches the point where it can start fusion reactions, burning hydrogen into helium or helium into carbon, it doesn't produce any light. So we call that period the dark ages because there's no light. But at some point, stars turn on and collections of stars turn on to make fragments of what today would become a galaxy. And what we want to see is that turning on, exactly how fast does it happen? In what kind of distribution on the sky does it happen? How do we see the magnificent, beautiful spiral galaxies of today form out of these little tiny building blocks in the early universe. We have a uh, comment from Guillermo, which I wanted to put to you, Rivka Galchen, which is, you know, why are why do we spend money on this when we know that at home we have many issues? I mean, namely one that you you named yourself, global warming. Like, should we be spending money in this particular way? As, as society? Yeah, I mean, I think that's always a deep question. Every sort of spending question is a deep question. You think, well, I mean, why aren't we spending more on schools? Why aren't we spending more on public health? Um, and, but I will say that for one thing that I sort of have noticed reporting on science is that, first of all, when you're spending on, on science, you're not just spending, you are spending on the incredible poetry of this knowledge of the kind of book of nature that we're in. Um, and then you do get all sorts of side benefits that do help people that you don't expect. But at the same time, you're also sort of employing people in extremely meaningful work. And that the real area that gets all the money, like if you compare 10 billion sounds like an enormous number and it sort of is an enormous number. I mean, I can't, I, you know, I can't even actually understand a number like that. But if you look at something like the Manhattan Project, which basically built a bomb, and they try and convert it into the sort of money, uh, like contemporary dollars. It's, you know, the estimates are something like $250 trillion. And you sort of realize that in a funny way, the kind of the science money that goes into NASA is like this kind of small footnote in the kind of massive investment and in kind of weapons research. Like, in a, anyway, I sort of think, you know, we should, really recognize that this is like the way the government 
it's kind of a funny thing that it's a way thing in which the government employs people at a high technical level in something mm. other than weapons. And I've often thought that's kind of what NASA is. It's almost, it, it was a kind of um, political, uh, a kind of arm of a kind of a soft power arm. But at the same time, I think, well, soft power is, it has a lot more beauty to it than than hard power. So it reminded me of the money that went into ballet during the Cold War. Like ballet is never going to get the kind of money that it got when it was kind of like Russian ballet versus American ballet. Right, and, right. And, I, and so it, I sort of think of it like that. Like it's this art and it's actually quite thrilling that it's going into the art rather than into these other areas. Um, well, and I just, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I just think about something like the F-35 program, you know, it's you know, a trillion and a half dollars. I mean, there there are so many programs in the United States government that um, that are just that are just so large. D- David Helfen, just staying on this topic for a second longer. Do you do you buy the sort of spinoffs argument? I think some people arguing for space research oftentimes say, well, you know, uh, microprocessors, because Apollo needed miniaturization, it sort of led to uh, the development of semiconductor technology and then onto the computers that we have today? Or do you think there's better arguments? Well, I think you must have seen in the article that is exactly the argument I used when confronted by a senior astronomer when I was an undergraduate, considering what career to choose. And I gave the spinoff argument And he interrupted me and said, no, that's not why we do this. We do this for the same reason we support opera companies and symphonies and poets, because it distinguishes us as human. And I sort of go with that explanation. I also (laughs) want to point out that the total is a dollar and a quarter per person per year. Uh, Just if we just count US citizens and this telescope has contributions from Canada and the European Space Agency and other places as well. So it's, it's a lot of money if you integrate it over 25 years, um, but it's not a very large amount of money to satisfy uh, our curiosity as a species. Yeah. Um, so I'm knocking on wood, literally knocking on wood as I ask this question. Um, Marshariki, what happens if the deployment fails or, the, or in some way the, the telescope doesn't function? Uh, I won't go jump off a cliff, but I might think about that. Um, If the sun shield doesn't deploy, uh, we do have the ability to retry all of the deployments, which is quite important. But if the sun shield doesn't deploy most of the way, then the telescope and the instruments won't get cold enough to function. The light sensors that are on JWST have to be quite cold to be able to take pictures. So the sun shield deployment is absolutely critical. Yeah. And David Helfen, how would it affect astrophysics if, if the telescope did not deploy correctly? Well, besides enormous disappointment, it might well affect future funding for future projects. Uh, NASA is a fairly risk averse institution, but if it were totally risk averse, we'd never make any progress. Uh, We have other telescopes already under construction uh, for various parts of the spectrum, and one hopes they would continue and and go on to allow us to explore the universe in other ways. Yeah. So I have kind of a a final question from me here that I want to go to each of you on this. You know, we 
in the past, telescopes have sort of been used to reframe sort of humans' position kind of within the universe. You know, we think of Galileo or we think of like Hubble and the discovery of other other galaxies. Um, Rivka, let's start with you. Do you think discoveries in space still have the power to change the way that people on Earth think about our uh, think about anything? Let's call it stop there. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, I, I don't know, but I, I, I go back to the fact that I sort of feel that there's almost nothing like space that everyone connects to and everyone has a foundational experience with. And, you know, you think, I think people also love to learn about sort of string theory, but um, when you think about other areas of science, you know, we don't have access to a kind of personal encounter with the Large Hadron Collider, but we have access to a personal encounter with the sky. And, and there's something transmissible about that information in a different way than other areas. So I, I like to think it's kind of like eternally renewed area of, of, of personal insight, as well as, of course, like more kind of profound scientific insight. Yeah. Marsha Riki, what about you? Do you think that a discovery that could be made with this telescope you've been working on for your whole career could change the way that humans see themselves in relation to the universe? I certainly hope so. And I'll go back to something that David said um, very early on, that the most stunning discovery that this telescope may make is one that we haven't predicted. And I would think that that kind of un, uh, surprising discovery might well shed some light on where we, what our role is in the universe. What is the universe really like in a way that we hadn't thought of before? And of course, things like you know measuring atmospheres of exoplanets tells us something about our place in the universe too. But I'm betting that the unknown, the unpredicted discovery will be the great one. Yeah, I'm. I am pretty excited about the idea of what would happen if we came back and there was a planetary atmosphere that had what we expect a living planet to look like. That seems like it would be a big moment in, in human history. I think so. Yeah. Um, and David Helfand, how about you? Could this telescope change our sense of ourselves in the, in the cosmos? Well, you know, I asked my students if we found definitive evidence for life on another planet, would that change their view of, of the universe? And I have to say, I'm somewhat disappointed that about half of them say no, hmm. uh, which I find sort of remarkable. But the other half <laughs> are profoundly moved by just the idea of thinking that here's a species that's evolved on this little planet orbiting a star that can go out and find other planets around other stars with oxygen-filled atmospheres indicative of life. And, and that connection, I think, is, is profound. Yeah. We've been talking about the James Webb Space Telescope, which will launch later this year with David Helfand, professor of astronomy at Columbia University. Rivka Gulchin, author of a recent New Yorker article, NASA's new telescope will show us the infancy of the universe, and Marsha Riki, professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona. Thank you to all three of you. Forum is, Forum is produced by Tina Lauberg, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Nina Sparling. Susan Britton is lead producer for the 10 o'clock hour. 
Our acting senior editor is Judy Campbell. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, and Brendan Willard. Our interns are Kimia Akbari and Jennifer Ng. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Have a great weekend. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.